Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, Ryan, and Matthew. Episode 247, recorded for the week of February 14th, 2024. ChatGPT remembers, oh no. Good <laughs> evening, Ryan. How's it going? It's going well. It's going well. That The title is terrifying. <laughs> I've asked some really stupid questions. <laughs> I definitely have uh, asked some dumb questions too. You know, that fan fictional stuff that, you know, I'm working on is probably not best <laughs> to share with the world either. <laughs> Uh, well, a quick follow-up. I was uh, at the C2C event yesterday, which is, uh, for those who don't know, the Google Community to Community uh, series. And basically, uh, they when they originally were really trying to ramp up Google Cloud and get adoption from customers, and they brought on you know TK, and they brought on a couple other SAP executives and sales, etc. They you know were talking about some of the things that really made NetApp uh, great and things that made... Uh, the Oracle and these are another type of the community. And they were saying, well, Google doesn't really have a community <laughs> at that time. And so they created the C2C as an idea to kind of spur grassroots community building around GCP. And so they do these events all the time. Uh, a lot of them are webinars and things like that. This is a, what they call a to-gather event. They really get into the two thing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the to-gather events are basically in-person. And so I went down to Sunnyvale to the lovely Google Cloud headquarters uh, in by the... Uh, Moffitt Field, and uh, I, you know, was on a panel, so it was kind of nice uh, to see people and talk cloud. And uh, you know, I have now have a bunch of people following me on LinkedIn, which is always great. I'm sure they'll be listening to the show too to hear what I have to say. But uh, it was a good session. Started at ten, so Google knows their audience. Not early people, especially <laughs> commuting in the Bay, uh, which I always appreciate. And then uh, there was a keynote on three data and AI trends that will define the next decade. Um, which was interesting. Steve uh, Stephanie Wong, who's the product manager for Duet AI, uh, talked for the, during that, as well as Bruno Aziza, who's part of the G uh, Google investment arm for the venture firm. And they gave a bunch of insights and things about you know, AI trends, where it's going, uh, things to think about, and so it was really great. And then they had a partner panel uh, with a bunch of the partners who kind of sponsored the event, and they were kind of talking about different things, which was good. And then they went into a um, thousand plus cloud migrations by. Uh, CIQ, which I was in the audience, I'm like, what's CIQ again? And then they're the company behind Rocky Linux. Uh, so that was cool because it was head, one of the head of the product leaders who was talking about what they're doing. Um, but he really took it not from a sales pitch of Rocky Linux. He took it more from, you know, here's the things that you need to think about from cloud migration, the optimizations you need to make. And so it was good, good introduction to cloud migration if you haven't done it. I thought you did great. And then we had lunch and then a women in tech panel, which was fantastic. Uh, and there's a couple other uh, sessions by NetApp and by AO Docs around how to do chatbots. And yeah, I didn't attend those because I was prepping for my panel at 3:30. <laughs> with uh, was basically what do you I know? Uh, what do I know now that I wish I had known when I started? Uh, moderated by uh, one of the speakers earlier in the day, and it was a really great session. We talked about all kinds of things, FinOps. We talked about uh, the pandemic and trying to scale rapidly. We talked about chaos engineering, you know, lots of different things that kind of came up and it was a good, a really good session. So definitely check this out. I, um, this is my first C2C event. I was invited to talk at one earlier last year that and unfortunately got canceled due to some issue. Um, and so this was the, the makeup one, like, please come to this one instead, which was much <laughs> more convenient to my house in Sunnyvale than uh, the one that I was going to do before in LA. So I uh, appreciate that. But uh, yeah, a really great event. So if you're definitely on the Google Cloud side and you're trying to get into the community and, and those things, the C2C, hands down, recommend it. Um, so definitely check it out. Yeah, it's cool. It sounded really, really great. I, I felt uh, very silly for missing it because I plain just forgot. 
And uh, <laughs> well, I mean, we're a little busy. I, I, yeah. I don't blame you for forgetting. I, I didn't remind you either. So that's partially on my part that I, I forgot to do that. Um, but yeah, it was it was actually kind of fun and uh, a little bit on the spot of like, you know, if you think about all of your starting on cloud, you know, it doesn't have to necessarily be GCP, but like, what would you absolutely don't do again? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, that is, I mean, because I, I was thinking about that the minute you said that the title of your panel, and it's like, oh, what would be my biggest takeaway? There's, there's a lot of things I think I wouldn't do again. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of things. I've I mean, there's learned. definitely a lot of scars that were learned through, uh, you know, through trial and error. Like, oh yeah, you know, um, and I've done it a few times. So, like, I've those mm-hmm. things that you don't do. I did the don'ts once, and then I now don't not to do the don'ts again. Um, but yeah, it was a uh, it was that was a tricky question. Um, mm-hmm. So for me, actually, I I kind of went um, down the path of you know, don't sleep on the managed services. So like mm-hmm. serverless, cloud SQL, um, you know, managed Kubernetes. You know, rethinking your architecture as you move from you know on-premise environments to GCP. I said, you know, those services save you a ton of time, a ton of complexity, a ton of uh, you know uh, challenges that you're going to run into in the cloud. And so that was kind of the mind uh, that I gave them. Uh, some of the other panelists had uh, you know some other you know uh, person on the panel with me was Deepa from PayPal. Um, you know, she was talking about in the pandemic, <laughs> you know, having to basically scale thirty percent overnight uh, with everyone moving to online shopping. And uh, you know, she her hers was actually really great. She said, "Don't um, don't do analytics on cloud first. Do transactional." And the reason why she said this is because analytics will use up all of your budget, <laughs> and it'll kill you. For, it'll kill your cloud journey early, uh, because if you're trying to just do analytics, the queries aren't optimized. They're going to run expensive. They're not going to be in a great situation. I hadn't really thought about that, and I thought that was a really great one uh, from my panelist. Uh, you know the. You know, really focus on getting transactional up there first. And the data stuff comes easier once you're on the cloud. And so that kind of made sense to me. No, it does make sense. And I never really thought about it about like application scope at that level, right? It's always per, I always think about it a per application just because of, you know, my, my career history of trying to take specific workloads from one place to the other. So that is, it is kind of cool to have that sort of categorized. Yeah. Yeah, and so uh, that was, uh, you know, the my do was, of course, FinOps, because I'm always chatting the value of FinOps. It's yeah. <laughs> so kind of, you know, like you got to gotta be tagging, you got to be thinking about showbacks, because, you know, if you don't measure it, you don't know what you're spending, um, and it'll get out of control real quickly if you're not watching that stuff. So that's always my my biggest do yeah. <laughs> anytime you do, uh, you do cloud. So, yeah, overall, yeah. great event. Uh, I definitely will attend these in the future, especially since it's free. I mean, you can't beat free. Right, um, and they're all over the country too, so that's even better. You know, it's not just you know here in the Bay; it's also down in LA. They have them in the Midwest and the East Coast. So, check it out. Uh, you can go to the C two C website, which I believe is uh, let's see, real time fill Google, mm-hmm. yeah, C two C global dot com is yeah. the name of the website. But it gives you all the information on the groups and where they're at and all the upcoming events uh, and the two gather things. So, definitely keep keeping an eye on it, uh, and we'll be uh, doing those things in the future. Yeah, so they have one coming up. Uh, in a couple of weeks here in Toronto and then New York uh, in Feb end of February. Uh, so lots, lots of these coming up. Yeah, that's very cool. Yeah, Los Angeles again in March, Paris, you know, London. I, maybe I can get an expense trip to go to London. That'd be cool. There you go. I'll go do a panel in London for you. Yeah, talk at any of these, right? If they'll fly around the world. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> when you fly <laughs> me there, I will definitely talk for, for free. Uh, <laughs> sounds great. Uh-huh. All right. Well, let's get into the news, shall we? Sure. Uh, so actually, uh, during the you know post uh, 
all the fun event and formal stuff we have social hour and of course someone asked me about what do you think about repatriation <laughs> mm-hmm. which was a uh, ample timing because i had a great study that i just was looking at over the week uh, from citrix Basically, they uh, did a, a study of a bunch of UK IT companies, and they said that 25% of organizations in the UK have already moved half or more of their cloud-based workloads back to on-premises infrastructures. And this is from a survey of 350 IT leaders on their current approach to cloud computing, and that 93% of them had been involved in a cloud repatriation project in the last three years. Uh, survey said that many of the reasons for the moves were things like security issues, high project expectations, and unmet expectations. Uh, but majority of them saying cost was the biggest motivator, which makes the most sense to me. Uh, and in general, you know, I, I talked to a lot of people for the cloud pod. I talked to a lot of people at, at you know our customers. I talked to a lot of people at events like C2C. I don't hear this being quite that big of a deal. I mean, you got your your isolated cases, twenty three sig, you know, twenty three signals with Basecamp. You've got the uh, you know the folks over at Twitter X uh, who are moving in. You got other companies who are. You know, really shouldn't have been to the cloud to begin with. Who are making that decision and, and changing their mind about how they want to go to cloud? And I suspect that when they say ninety three percent of people have been involved in a cloud repatriation project, there are certain repat you know certain apps that probably move to the cloud and IT shops that shouldn't have moved, and they're moving them back for cost reasons or other things. But that doesn't mean their full workload is moving. Um, and I think again, it's it's all about picking the right place for your cloud to run. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. I, it still feels like a little bit like smoke to me. Not a lot of fire. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's kind of the same thing that happened in reverse a few years ago, where it's like all the companies are moving to the cloud. The same reports were, you know, 50% of companies are moving other entire workloads into the cloud. And now it's sort of the, the pendulum swing in the other way. And, you know, it's funny because, you know, like I read this and I'm like Citrix and they're, who are they querying? And it's like IT shops. And I'm like, oh, there's probably some bias in that sample. But then I'm, I'm also thinking like, oh, everyone that we're talking to, you know, are people that are really interested in cloud, really into, you know, cloud transformation. <laughs> and so it's like, it's really hard to know what's what. Um, and so it's, you know, I think it really probably the reality is somewhere in the middle, which is, yeah, there's some workloads that shouldn't have moved to the cloud. Um, or they thought they were going to transform once they got there, right? Proven strategy and they, and things change and they're no longer able to do that. So move it back. That makes the most sense. And there's probably, th- you know, people that just, you know, lost the fight internally. If, if, you know, the cloud structure, you know, didn't work out with them, that they didn't have the right people to, to come up with a cloud platform and it really was full of security holes and, and logging problems. And yeah, sure. But yeah, I still don't think there's a huge trend where we're going to see everyone move out of the cloud. I think it'll just be somewhere in the middle as usual. I mean, it was so expensive. It's so expensive to move out of the cloud, you know, talking about. Uh, data exfiltration costs, <laughs> you know, unless you're going mm-hmm. to Google and you're canceling your entire contract, apparently. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, so I, I don't really know um, y- the cost, the opportunity loss with your customers. I, I don't see, I don't, I don't see it being something that like B2C companies or B2B SaaS companies are going to do. Um, it's just too expensive and too disruptive. But, you know, for, for specific IT workloads, I can, I can definitely <laughs> see why it makes sense. You know, if, hey, this is our, our print server, you know, why does that need to be in the cloud? Right. It just needs, you know, some pretty low end hardware. There's some specifically purpose built appliances that do print servery things now. Maybe that doesn't make sense in the cloud. Um, so, that, you know, there's also a bunch of things that people have adopted as SaaS apps because they potentially weren't able to get the resources to maintain the application or to manage the servers. And so they were like, let's go to SaaS. And, but, you know, Sometimes SaaS doesn't make sense from a cost perspective either, right? If you can run it on premise on a, a low end server and it's not mission critical to your business, 
you know, maybe you can get away with that now if you've been able to hire IT resources, you've been able to kind of actually staff now in our, our great tech recession <laughs> um, of, uh, you know, being able to get people to actually do some of the things that you were, you know, maybe not able to do in the past. Yeah. All right, let's move on to AI is how ML makes money. Uh, ChatGPT. Oh, yeah. Uh, has added a new memory feature. Oh, no. uh, with this remembering feature allows you to remember <laughs> things you have chatted about with ChatGPT in the past. So things like you love to travel or you have a daughter or I'm really interested in uh, long walks on the beach. Uh, it's simple as asking ChatGPT to remember something while you're chatting with it. Uh, and if you don't want to use the memory in your chat GPT conversation, you can do a temporary chat like incognito mode for chats. <laughs> sort of what it feels like. Uh, and if you are doing some of those GPTs, those custom marketplace GPTs, you can also set up memories for those as well. So when you provide access to the GPTs, you can give a preset can set of memories for that. And uh, I don't know, do you ever see the, the sci-fi show Westworld? I have, yes. So when I read through this, all I could think of was the reveries of Westworld. <laughs> and this is this is part of how, you know, things go really bad for us. <laughs> <laughs> that was my first thought as well. It's like the minute you start like having remembrance of like what these are, it like it's that's probably not gonna be good. <laughs> yeah. I mean it's it's a cool advancement. Luckily I know the technology, it's just you know, it's just you know a rag type implementation yeah. of retrieval augmented generation. So it's basically just you're giving a bias to your to whatever base model you're using. So it's not really that that bad as Westworld, but uh, definitely yeah, the first no. thought I had. <laughs> it was like, really you chose memories? Like okay. <laughs> I was just saved, trying to think how things. if I start seeing the answers, you know, skew towards kind of jaded curmudgeon, I'll know that it's it's <laughs> logged. <laughs> you 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 told to remember too many bad things about yourself. Yeah. That's, what, that's what it's told you to do. Um, I mean, I, it is really impressive, though, how some of the stuff is just moving so quickly. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, so like this is one of the things. Yeah, you know, I've been I, I've been learning a lot more about AI. I was in a you know, I, yesterday. I was watching some webinars about it. And I learned more and you know, re- remote augmented or the uh, retrieval augmented generation and why you need that and the base model retrieval and stuff like that. And I was like, okay, well, that's cool, you know. And like, definitely, if you can set like things that you always care about, like. You know, I love Disney. I love the mm-hmm. Seahawks. I love blue. <laughs> you know, if you can kind of give it some cool things like that, and then like help inform things that would be more interesting to you as a person when you ask questions like, hey, I'm thinking about going to this place, what can I do? And it's like, oh, you know, you really are into this. And there's a really cool Lego museum. I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Something like that that is giving you that kind of recommendation. I can see that being really valuable. Oh, totally. And I think it'll also, like, I think a lot of people initially trained a lot of models to get that level of customization, right? So they were building, right, which was really models, expensive, <laughs> which is super expensive. And so now this is sort of an option to get, you know, uh, this is sort of in the middle, right? It's where you want, you want some of these things to be sort of general biased things that you, you're setting as a members, but then you can use just the model as is after that, which is great. Mm hmm. Cohere has a new model uh, created by the Co- their nonprofit research lab. Uh, they're excited to announce the new state-of-the-art open-source, massively multilingual generative LM covering 101 different languages. And the big improvement is not only the language support, but also the cultural relevance of the model. Uh, so this is very important as you're thinking about, hey, I'd like you to convert <laughs> this marketing message to this other language. Uh, you probably want to make sure you have cultural things. <laughs> like, oh, mm-hmm. you just said that... Uh, you know, the way you wrote that in the translation, why it's technically accurate is not necessarily culturally appropriate. Uh, and so these type of things are really important as you get into more sophisticated LLM use cases. And a lot of people are looking at LLM for things like localization support uh, and, you know, translating tweets and different things, different languages. So people have that access and you need to make sure it's 
it's being culturally relevant or else you're going to put a good PR nightmare, <laughs> which is not great. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, uh, and then, you know, being able to find a hundred people who know all the languages you want to potentially translate to is, is hard to do and it's expensive. Mm-hmm. And so this is a great, you know, it's going to be a great area of usage of AI, I think in the future. So this is the new IA model and IA data sets. Uh, and they are poorly permissive Apache 2.0 licensed uh, models. So you can use them in a lot of different things. And I expect to see them show up in all of our happy cloud vendors uh, and solutions soon. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. This is cool. I mean, it's something we take for granted, right? In a predominantly English speaker country, we have a lot more access and a lot more data on these things. It, it, I think expanding this globally is a great thing and we'll open up, open up AI and, and the technology advancements to a lot more places. Yeah. Cool. Well, and I, you know, in, in India, for example, there's hundreds of languages, I believe, mm-hmm. uh, that exist. But yeah, there's the, the most common ones, Telugu and uh, Hindi uh, and uh, some of the Arabic speaking areas. But yeah, there's also a bunch of smaller languages that are very culturally relevant and geographically relevant inside of India. And so there are several startups in India that are building models to be able to help those markets. And so those languages are able to be reached as well. So that like something you're never going to get in the US. <laughs> no yeah. VC is going to fund that. No one, <laughs> you know, no, you're never going to get massive scale on it. But to the India culture and to the Indian people, it's very important. Um, and so to have those options for, you know, for these type of things is really important. So um, there's a lot of startups in third world countries, you know, helping, you know, bring smaller languages back to a model that people can use them. Mm-hmm. All right, let's move to AWS, which uh, they also have some rag <laughs> opportunities this week. <laughs> so uh, at reInvent, they announced Knowledge Bases for Bedrock, uh, which basically allowed you to connect your Bedrock models uh, as your foundational model to your company data. Uh, and so now they've extended that to support Amazon Aurora PostgreSQL, uh, the vector engine for OpenSearch Serverless, Pinecone, and Redis Enterprise Cloud. And the Cohere can be used as a foundation model for a lot of their things as well. So you're getting the ability to take your foundational model. You're getting your ability to add your enterprise data in a secure way that doesn't allow that data to end up in the model itself. And you're getting more re- relevant, more interesting uh, type use cases. So one of the one of the interesting use cases you could use for something like this is if you can point it at your repo, your code repo, you can now basically train, take a, a very code-heavy LM as your base foundation, add all your coding logic to it, and then you can ask it questions like, hey, how do we... You know, how do I modify the function that does uh, billing on our website? And it can, you know, give you guidance based on the actual code that you have and the relevancy of the language. So that's just a, that's just a use case. This one doesn't necessarily support that in this particular model, but uh, something that you're trying to do with this type of technology. That's kind of neat. Um, I yeah, I I'm surprised that you can do that without getting the data in the model. Um, I thought this was just a sort of an easy button to get it in the model, but uh, that's great. Because yeah, that's a it's a big concern. You don't want to have basically access and stuff, you know, to things it's not supposed to, and you want to be able to, you know, manage your data specifically. So if you don't have to train it on the full data set, that's a good way to do it. If yeah. you can embed it this way, that's even better. Yeah. So it, basically, there's a there's a picture of the flow of this in the document, and basically, you know, there's a user query. It goes to basically the embedded uh, retrieval augmentation and gets you an embedding model. That then generates the embeddings that make sense, and then basically takes that, applies it to the vector store to retrieve similar documents. Then uses those similar documents to search the foundational model to basically augment the two together, and then that's what it responds back to you as the user. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a 
really cool. Yeah, <laughs> it's, uh, it's definitely making it better and better to you know build these models and work with them without them mm-hmm. costing you a, fa- a ton of money. So let you know, let Cohere, let ChatGPT, let uh, you know Gemini and Bedrock spend all the money building models, mm-hmm. and then you just get the benefit of them. And then you add enough of what you need that special sauce to you on top of the foundational model for a lot less money, uh, and you get a really powerful tool. I think it's. It's all starting to make sense to me now, which is kind of scary, Uh, but uh, I'm starting to get it. I'm starting to understand it well enough now. Well, they're starting to solve those edge cases that are concerned, right? Because that, you know, when you have to dump all your data and train, train a model specifically to get a relevant answer on the back end, it's like you start to go, well, that's, that's going to be expensive and that's going to be cost prohibitive. And that, but now they're introducing all these things that sort of fill in these edges, which, you know, like like this and like the memory. And I think that this is fantastic. You're starting to really see these become useful for more than just, you know, sort of a, the chat bot sort of use case. And I think that's the cool part of how fast this is moving and, and the time we live in is that we're getting to watch it in very quick succession. Can't wait to see what's next. Hopefully not <laughs> more, you know, mass destruction tools. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, uh, all right, Amazon is positioned as the highest in the execution in the 2023 Gardner Magic Quadrant for cloud database management systems, which no shock. <laughs> Amazon <laughs> dominates all of these pretty well. Uh, you know, Amazon touted all of their amazing options, including ElastiCache and RDS for DB2, which is not my favorite one, uh, as well as the ability now to do vector searches inside of your DB for pretty much all of their managed offerings, including as well as zero ETL integrations and generative power AI uh, using all of your data services. So, uh, you know, that's what... Amazon had to say, but if you actually go to the actual article, <laughs> uh, you know, they, they basically Gartner as them definitely up in the lead. You know, they're talking, you know, they're in that position mostly because of the fact they have presence and leadership. They have flexible database engines and models and they're a resource to integrate into the data ecosystem. Uh, but they do point out that uh, there's limiting offerings beyond AWS Cloud. So, you know, you can't use these things anywhere but Amazon. Uh, you know, there's a ton of choices, which also adds complexity because now you have to figure out which of these makes sense to you. And then, you, of course, you have your alleviating lock-in concerns around you know being locked into AWS on serving that is only available to them. So those are those are fair uh, concerns, I think. Still, mm-hmm. a couple other interesting ones here. Uh, Google, you know, got strengths on on openness, unified uh, data management, governance, and industry and leading cloud infrastructure. And then their cautions were market perception, the limited and focused range of services. And the simplicity of pricing, which is not really a caution to me, <laughs> so I don't know why that was one they. Yeah. But basically, uh, yeah, they they called the simplicity has uh, should not be seen as a lack in capability, but is often preferred. Is what they said basically in that one, and then uh, you know a few other ones here. Microsoft, of course, trusted global partner, more open and unified data ecosystems, innovation and in AI augmented data management, and then cautions. You know, pace of upgrades are slow. Uh, performance and cost challenges of, Am- of Microsoft and then deployment challenges. And then there's also a bunch of other databases in here. Uh, Redis, Mongo, SAP uh, that I could talk about too if you care about any of them, Ryan. But those are <laughs> those are the three big hyperscalers we care about. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm surprised that Amazon's not closing on Google in terms of being more visionary with a lot of the enhancements that, that they've put out in the last few years. Um, cause I, I do get Google leading in the visionary space and, and Amazon leading in the ability to execute. Um, I mean, I think it's, know. I think it's partially a fundamental foundational problem for Amazon versus Google in that regard, right? Because in the Google world, everything is vertically integrated. 
And so because it's all vertically integrated, you know, moving from my data from BigQuery into Cloud SQL and into uh, Bigtable, like it's all very seamless. It's all the, basically the same storage under the hood. You know, you can use the same models. Um, and then you look at Amazon, it's like, yeah, we have all these database options, but they're all ice, they're all silos. All the data has to be moved between the mm-hmm. multiple systems. There's not as much connectivity between them. You have a lot of ETL challenges in Amazon between the different database types that you have to manage. Um, and I think that like if, if I was Gartner, that's where I would be dinging Amazon mm-hmm. is on that. And you know, and I think Amazon sort of introduced a lot of fixes to address specifically that, right? The zero ETL integration. They're, mm-hmm. you know, they're basically solving the rough edges that they put into their design for stability and isolation. And they're sort of building scaffolding to sort of handle that outside of that in order to sort of catch that. And, uh, you know, I, I think that's where Amazon's really made a lot of improvements the last few years. It's, it's just sort of interesting to see sort of that not really count enough for them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Uh, Oracle, you know, is in here too. Of course. <laughs> uh, but their caution, uh, legacy perception of cost, which, you know, everyone thinks Oracle's expensive, so that one's fair. Mm-hmm. Not top of mind for cloud. Uh, I mean, I think if I'm using Oracle, I'm pretty pretty aware of the fact they have Oracle Cloud now. <laughs> I don't, you know, like, that's probably for new customer acquisition, they're probably not top of mind, but I, for people who want Oracle, I think they definitely know it exists. Uh, yeah, and then they have some, I'm sure. Then they have slower growth and some hyperscale competitors. I don't really know that that's a big caution for me. Um, you know, but their strengths that were, you know, proven feature breadth and depth because Oracle's badass, uh, the database, not Oracle company, uh, pricing model, and then uh, hybrid and multi-cloud capabilities, uh, which, you know, Oracle and Microsoft probably have the most robust set of hybrid and multi-cloud uh, solutions mm-hmm. for their databases <laughs> in particular. I would say that, you know, if I'm starting a new application, Greenfield, you know, I'm never going to look at Oracle first, right? Like that's going to be something like a, some, some, architecture thing that I need to achieve that I could only achieve on Oracle, right? That's so I can kind of get that where they, you know, it's where they, it's not cloud specific exactly, but it's also not going to be the first choice in any kind of design decision. Uh, so I'm excited to announce that Amazon has Amazon data Firehose, which is Amazon Kinesis <laughs> data Firehose, <laughs> which oh, is not the Kinesis part. Uh, which I just find funny because I think even when they announced Kinesis Data Firehose, we were like, this is a really clunky name. <laughs> and uh, I'm glad now, you know, 10 years later, basically, <laughs> Amazon Kinesis Data Firehose is now just Amazon Data Firehose. So appreciate yeah. that. Um, I also would hope maybe this is, uh, you know, a sign that it's going to support more than just Kinesis in the future. Like it's probably going to support Kafka and the MSK at some point. Hint, 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 hint. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think I've always disliked the Kinesis Firehose thing just because of how confusing it was alongside Kinesis. Like, you know, I had a, a lot of people would use uh, Firehose in use cases where it didn't make a lot of sense, right? Just because they thought it was Kinesis and it, it's not. Um, and so it is sort of interesting to see them drop the name on this. Uh, I was very happy to see that they're dropping this in a way that's not going to break everyone, which is nice. Like, <laughs> they're not going to change the name of the, the API endpoints yeah. and all the IM policies. Yeah, that would be a bad choice. <laughs> Please don't do that. Yeah. Um, yeah, Amazon Firehose. Oh, it does, it does actually integrate into MSK now. I see that. And 20 other AWS sources. So yeah, so the Kinesis name was probably a mistake because <laughs> people mm-hmm. were not thinking it could support anything but Kinesis. So it makes sense. Uh, yeah, it's, um, 
you know, I, it's kind of interesting. I, I imagine Kinesis still has a ton of volume and a ton of traffic to it, but I, I do wonder if it's very similar to like Kubernetes, where you know, ECS is a really good product. Uh, I would definitely say probably most customers coming into Amazon today are probably not going to choose Kinesis or ECS. They're going to choose EKS mm-hmm. and MSK. Um, and I wonder if over time we see some of these things start getting phased out. Um, I mean, or do they have enough volume to just support them forever? Which is probably the Amazon way, to be honest. They'll yeah, just support yeah. it till the last customer dies in the you know in the heat expansion of the sun. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's a uh, you know it definitely uh, it'd be interesting. But you know, I definitely wonder if you'll start seeing you know we're seeing a lot more EKS forward uh, announcements from Amazon. We don't see a lot of ECS enhancements. I wonder if we'll kind of see the same thing with Kinesis. Just a lot less new things coming into Kinesis. A lot more stuff coming into MSK. Every time I start to think that, though, there is a major like ECS announcement or or something that makes me think, you know, like, oh, maybe not, you know. It, but yeah, I mean, it, I will say that you know, the, the you know, the use of Kafka and the use of Kubernetes and these things are so ubiquitous in so many places that it's it's the technology that people know, um, and especially with you know the amount of cloud expertise you have out there in the wild, like it becomes one of those things where just that alone, right? Not even for a, its technology evaluation of if one is better, but just it's what it's known. These there'll be choose more and more. Um, but you know, I don't know. Like I hope that, like I said, you know, I feel the same way actually about Kinesis, you know, versus Kafka as I do uh, ECS and Kubernetes. Like, yeah, no, you, these are all great tools, but I like the simplicity of Kinesis. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like it's it's easier for me to to integrate with and and use that you know than it is for Kafka, which just has a lot more things I have to be aware of and and set and even MSK, which does a lot uh, to to simplify that and and manage that on the service level, is still got to do all the same Kafka stuff in your application side. So it's yeah. Whereas Kinesis is just sort of simple. It's nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's uh I definitely think Kinesis could have some legs with it if it could get some of the things that Kafka has for on-prem and like if they've truly supported hybrid properly, I think Kinesis could have a lot more traction, but I mm-hmm. think they've so limited what they've done for supporting Kinesis on-premise to really just you know, their their big iron premise appliances. Um I think that sort of limits their ability to really compete with Kafka in a true like multi-cloud, multi you know, hybrid model. I think that kind of hurts Kinesis. Yeah. I think similarly, I mean, while ECS, they did a lot to, to try to go into the, the hybrid model. All of the data plane still is in the cloud, right? It's just the agents that they've expanded out. And I think a lot of that, those early Amazon designs sort of, it was before the hybrid model was really at full gear. And so they're, Mm -hmm. they, you know, it struggles a little bit, but I also feel like I'm seeing a lot more SaaS services sort of adopt the same sort of thing where, you know, data plane is everything and that's you in your internal secrets. And then the control plane is what everyone sort of, that's the product that they're having. So, see, well, a couple of weeks ago, we uh, talked about Gemini and uh, Bard being replaced by Gemini, the new ultra model coming out and uh, the reviews are in and uh, people are saying the Gemini ultra model is pretty good. And uh, they say it may appears that it might be good enough to win, which I guess they're saying <laughs> win against ChatGPT. Uh, they said Ultra is much faster, less wordy, and less bland. It answers than the paid versions of ChatGPT, uh, and has even done a good job with creative storytelling in some examples. 
However, it is still falling short in a number of areas, most notably coding and reasoning problems. Uh, but that is promised to be fixed in the next version of the Gemini Ultra, which uh, I'm sure you know Google does not want to invest a billion dollars into something that's only good enough. I imagine they <laughs> would probably like to be number one <laughs> and yeah. you know make ChatGPT eat its eat its shorts. So uh, you know, glad to see that you know overall feedback is good. I've actually been quite impressed with the Gemini. I've been using it a little bit more mm-hmm. than ChatGPT. I, uh, you know, it's also helpful that when I go to bar.google.com, it just redirects me there. So I just, yeah, it's like keep forgetting as Gemini. <laughs> uh, that's not quite fed into my head yet. But uh, I am, uh, I am impressed with what Gemini is providing. I even use it today uh, for our episode 236 show notes. I was like, you know, there wasn't really any good quotes. I normally like, you know, at symbol, you guys, if you have a quote and I put it in the thing. So as we're doing our social media posts, it'll, you know, it'll tag you that, hey, you know, Ryan said this in the Cloud Pod episode, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and so I was, you know, I just took all of her show notes and I, the whole show note document, I just put it into, into Gemini. I said, hey, make me five uh, clever social media tweets. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, it gave me five really good ones. <laughs> so I was like, wow, that's, I'm using that feature more often. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, where chat GBTs are all kind of the same, which is like slight variations. It just was not as, not as creative by any stretch. Yeah, so I mean, it's so cool because like putting putting together those things like social media posts and stuff like that. It's I agonize over those things. I'm not really good at it, and I have no confidence in having something that spits out something that I can, you know, be like, oh, I like that, and have something is so powerful. It's awesome. I love it. Yeah, it is. It is really cool, and I, you know, I always it's always so weird because I. It isn't my go-to quite yet, but it's starting to come more and more of the go-to in my option. I did use it a lot for performance reviews this year, <laughs> so mm-hmm. uh, they won't be quite as dry as they have been in the past. Uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, it, it like just to give you a couple of examples. Um, <laughs> you know, so catchy tweets for the Cloud Pod episode two forty six. Uh, Bard bites the dust. Gemini rises plus AI helps Skynet with bioweapons. Don't miss the Cloud Pod for latest cloud and AI news. Like, it's not very complicated, but it's like it's catchy. It'll grab people's attention. And then local LLM, more like laugh out loud. The cloud pod tackles the weirdest tech names and helps you navigate the ever-changing cloud landscape, <laughs> which I loved. I was like, that's great. That's great. So, yeah. Yeah. Like I wouldn't come up with that. Like mm-hmm. Gemini is a much better marketer than I am. It's <laughs> yeah. what I learned here. Uh, so yeah, it was uh, yeah, definitely good. And then, uh, you know, use, our, use all of the, the tools to my disposal, which is nice. I found myself using it for very different uh, things that I wouldn't, normally use uh, AI for. So I was, I was doing a construction project with a friend and estimating materials to buy, you know, oh. uh, stuff like that, you know, where giving it a limited set of information and then just asking a question and worked out really well, actually. It saved me a ton of time because I, you know, I was trying to do this in a rush. And, and so to, instead of measuring everything like to the T and having an exact thing, the estimation turned out to be just as well, right? As if I tried to measure it and then add, you know, 5% or whatever. Yeah. So that's kind of neat, you know, those types of things where I think it's, uh, there's, I think there's still a, a ton, at least in my life, but untapped use cases that I don't think of to use chat GPT for yet. Yeah. Well, now okay. that it's like, you know, the apps are on my phone and it's more available to me. Like I, you know, the rumor is for the new iPhone that they're going to release this update to Siri, which is going to have an embedded AI in it that'll be on your phone. So you don't have the privacy concerns. Um, like there's some, there's some cool stuff coming. So I'm, you know, this is getting it's showing up everywhere again. I think it. Well, I think it's changing the world in many ways, and I think it's fundamentally changing some jobs. I think it's still a bit overhyped. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but we'll you know we'll continue to see how it improves and gets better. But uh, yeah, I was reading uh, this week. It's not publicly available, but you know, 
Google built uh, you know another model just on their code, all the Google code they've ever written over the twenty mm. some odd years they've been in business, and they've given that to their developers as part of you know their own custom version of Duet AI, basically. And so now you know they can basically you know use ChatGPT to answer questions about the entire Google code base <laughs> to the to the yeah. developers there, and like that's tremendously powerful. Can you imagine how useful that is for a code base as large as I'm sure they have? Like that's fantastic. oh yeah, onboarding I mean, even, even, as a new Google engineer, like oh. <laughs> yeah. So Even at our confusing. day job, like if you could, you know, point it at our code and say, hey, how does this function work? Or how does this thing get calculated? And they couldn't explain it to you mm-hmm. based on its understanding of the code and the logic brainchild. Like it's like it could be really powerful. So yeah. I, I definitely think it's it'll change the world in some ways. It'll also, you know, be terribly frustrating <laughs> in others. <Yes>. Yeah. <laughs> it'll almost do what you want. Yeah. <laughs> Like when it can actually spin up a Kubernetes cluster and make it not be sucky, I'll you know then I'll be happy. Yeah. <laughs> so, not sure yeah. humans can do that yet. Yeah, humans can't do it. So yeah, maybe <laughs> ChatGPT can or Bard or Gemini. All right, uh, Google is announcing the new network functionality optimizer is generally available for GK, GKE Enterprise, the premium edition of Google's Kubernetes engine. As part of the GKE Enterprise, network function optimizer delivers the enterprise scale and high data plane performance for containerized applications that Google's customers have been looking for, including the functionality that help have been developed as part of the multi-network Kubernetes enhancement proposal and their multi-network uh, level multi-tenancy presentation at the Kubernetes community. Uh, some of the key benefits are extending multi-network capabilities to pods that run on the nodes. With multi-network support for pods, you can enable multiple interfaces on nodes and pods the GK cluster, allowing for data plane and control plane separation and delivering a high-performance data plane natively in software that comparable to those assisted by hardware simplifies workload scheduling on the pod and removing underlying hardware NIC dependencies. Um, you know, this is the first time I've seen them talk about GKE Enterprise in a, in a hot minute. <laughs> like, wasn't... Mm-hmm. Wasn't that one of the things we talked about with them uh, at Next? Is that they were they were going to start either deprecating this name, moving just to Anthos, or Anthos was going to deprecate into GK Enterprise? But then, like nothing's really happened in that space. Yeah, it's kind of strange, and it's it's causing us confusion anyway as we research these. Because I was trying to figure out if yeah, is this separate from the Anthos? Because uh, a lot of the Anthos configuration sort of uh, handles some of these network con- controls and, and connections and. And is this a different product or a new product? And now I'm now I'm just more confused than I was before I read the article. Yeah. So oh, yeah, GKE Enterprise was just announced in November uh, at Next, mm-hmm. and then you know, in this, I was really looking back to the article, bringing together the best of GKE and Anthos into an integrated, intuitive container platform with the unified console experience. So, like to me, it sounds like they're combining, <laughs> mm-hmm. but yeah, still, it seems like they they had a vision and then they sort of forgot about it, <laughs> or maybe. Maybe they just haven't finished development and then we just haven't heard much because November wasn't that far ago. We're still, yeah, working its way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe, maybe we'll start seeing a lot more GK Enterprise branding, but uh, yeah, I mean, we haven't really seen much of Anthos these days either. So mm-hmm. um, it's sort of interesting. Well, I mean, I think that was what they was part of next is they were talking about GK Enterprise chain, moving over to that name is because everyone thought Anthos was uh, the multi cloud. Yeah. yeah. And so that makes sense to me that they're, that all the new branding will be this but it's also sort of what i couldn't figure out is what part of this was new when when compared to some of the functionality that was in anthos and, and that's the part where i'm a, a little confused by yeah so i just asked i asked gemini because if everyone's gonna know it's gonna be gemini <laughs> yeah <laughs> and uh, it said uh 
It used to be two separate offerings, but now they've been merged into one single platform called GKA Enterprise. And this means the functionality and features of both are now available under the GKA Enterprise umbrella. And they're saying the functionality of Anthos was focused on hybrid and multi-cloud deployments. I'm like, that's exactly what they told us it wasn't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and then GKA Enterprise was focused primarily on running Kubernetes clusters on GCP. Uh, and now basically you can, it's both of them together. Uh, and the licensing has been combined, according to this Gemini. Yeah. I think Anthos is a better name, just personally. The GK yeah. Enterprise. GK Enterprise is so dry. Like I, anything like, Enterprise. You get excited as a nerd, like, hey, what do you do for a living? Well, I run GK Enterprise or I run oh. Anthos. People are like, ooh, what's that? Like, I, yeah. But, yeah, one thing about Google, they love their simple naming. Yes, they <laughs> so, do. Yeah. Too simple in some cases. Yes. <laughs> Unfortunately, it causes massive Especially, confusion. Like, yeah, when you're trying to do research on them, like, yeah. Can you call it other than Google storage? Like, come on. Yeah, the Google Cloud storage <laughs> one, it drives me crazy because I'm always like, oh, I need to look at object storage pricing or I need to look at, you know, basically attached uh, VM disk storage and like you have to search basically the same thing, but then like scroll through like a thousand lines of text to find like, oh, mm-hmm. this is the section on that part. Yeah. Uh, which is kind of annoying. So, uh, well, I'm glad to see it. Uh, network function optimizer. I don't know about multi-network pods. I guess maybe if you have like a high throughput network application, that's sort of, um, I don't know. I, I, guess, I, I guess I'm just still kind of anti-multi-network because it, you know, back in my early hosting ASP days, uh, you know, we had web servers with the front and the back network. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the front network was where the web servers talked to the load balancer and the back network was where the low web servers talked to the database. And we were like, that's isolation. Uh, you know, before no, no. you got into like, you know, there was having everything route through a VLAN because in those days, you know, the VLANs, you couldn't handle large amounts of traffic through the VLAN technology. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could, but it just, you had backplane limitations in Cisco gear. So you, this was kind of the solution you did. And it was a, it was a way to do segmentation without having to do VLANs. And, you know, it was physically isolated. So it was more secure, of course, but it wasn't <laughs> because yeah, really the web server, once the web server was owned, you were basically hosed because now you had access to everything. Um, so, yeah, it wasn't really a great architecture, but it was what we did back in the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. What's what <laughs> uh, so I, I guess I still in my mind when I see multi-network pods, I'm like, what are you doing? Why do you need that? <laughs> so mm-hmm. uh, unless it's for scaling out the same workload, uh, you know, it doesn't really make a lot of sense to me, but I'm sure there's probably workloads I'm not thinking about in this particular model. Yeah, the, I mean, the only thing I can really think about is those is something that you really want to be non-routable and isolated that way, right? Which is... But then you you know then you'd have to ask yourself why you're plumbing in this sort of dual home network anyway. So it is yeah, very again confusing. the same problem we had back in the early 2000s. If you if you own the web server, you own both. You own mm-hmm. the private network and the web network. Yeah, and maybe it's it doesn't like, help you with any horizontal transactions. <laughs> no, and maybe it's not security, or maybe it's not isolation. Maybe it's like reusable IP space, like a way to get away from having to NAT everything or something like that. Like maybe I don't know. But uh, yeah, I, I would, I, I'm going to do some more research. Maybe I can find some information on good use cases for this. Cause I, my initial reaction to it has got to be a scale thing. Like it just, I want I want more throughput than one network card can support, provide. But then I'm like, you know, at one point you're putting so much failure into one container. Like why would you do that? Or one pod really, which isn't mm-hmm. one container. It could be multiple containers, I suppose. Um, yeah. So, and yeah. If, you know, in, you've, one of the advantages of Kubernetes is sort of divorcing yourself from managing that layer, right? Like you don't mm-hmm. really, you can't really use the NIC, full NIC interface capabilities, right? It's of of a container. Like it's all tied to the, the hardware at some point. Like it's all going to turn into a physical layer. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's a, that's a trick. You, 
Yeah. Kubernetes, it makes you don't have to manage all that bullshit. No, no, that's false. <laughs> <laughs> that's a trick that you were played on because like managing Kubernetes at scale is hard and uh-huh. uh, very complicated. And uh, if you think it's going to all go away because it's all been obfuscated by GKE, I'm sorry to tell you you're incorrect. Well, it is if, if you're, you know, the GKE customer. Like if I, as long as I don't run the, the Kubernetes platform, perfect. <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> Sure. I just file a ticket when it doesn't do what I want. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> How's that going for you with Google these days? Yeah. It's not good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Turns uh, out it just doesn't do what I want and no one will fix it. Yeah. Like, well, we'll put it as a product enhancer request. Thanks. Thanks for that. Appreciate it. All right. Azure. Uh, new data and AI solutions in Microsoft Cloud for sustainability help move organizations from pledges to progress. Well, that's a that's an attack on somebody. I'm not sure who, but mm-hmm. <laughs> the, they're introducing a new data and AI solution for the Microsoft Cloud for sustainability that provides capabilities for organizations that need to progress in their sustainability journey. These include faster environmental, social, and governance data analytics and insights, AI insights, and AI assistant to help accelerate impactful decision making and reporting and other advanced capabilities. This is in preview. Uh, with the sustainability, sustainability data solutions in Microsoft Fabric, allowing organizations to accelerate their time to insights and sustainability progress, providing out-of-the-box ESG data models, connectors, and reporting. And connecting your ESG data to the Fabric, you can turn volumes of sustainability data into meaningful insights and progress. So, I, I, you know, being able to take your data and then apply it to larger holistic ESG data sets of how you're impacting sustainability is really cool. Uh, I really like the concept of this. Uh, but, I mean... It seems like it's very lightweight, <laughs> you know, in the article, even like what they talk about the use cases, the one they point out is Allegiant Stadium, uh, which happened to be hosting the Super Bowl. So, of course, you did, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, obtained lead goal certification. Uh, and basically, they're saying how uh, they're able to use this tooling to help them do reporting on their sustainability things with their solar farm and all the things that Microsoft had to help them do that. So it's it's nice, but I think it's still a lot of consulting is <laughs> how I would mm-hmm. sort of describe it. It's like, yes, all this stuff is capable in there, but you're not going to be able to just plug it into your ESG data without a little bit of help. The irony in all this for me is that out of all the clouds, the one to get your sustainability data out of that's the hardest is Azure. Everywhere oh. else has this man's thing. I can go directly to a dashboard and I can get that number and I can export a report. With Azure, I got to set up this Power BI link to this app thing that links to a template in a database, which I then have to authorize at the main tenant level of my Microsoft and subscription, not even the subscription level at the org level. And I'm just, I'm laughing at this because I'm just like, like, well, make me jump through 12 hoops to get this data. Thank you. Yeah, so I mean, the, when, the Fabric stuff, uh, I mean, we haven't really talked about Microsoft Fabric here, but basically it's a rebranding of a ton of their um, data analytics and data AI capabilities. Um, so this is where like their their competitor to Hadoop and Spark and all that lives inside of Fabric. Um, it is a massively complex uh, set of tools, <laughs> you know, from Data Factory, Synapse, uh, Power BI, uh, and all of that. I was doing some research on this because we're looking at a Power BI project, and I was just like, there's so much in this. It's yes. so complicated. Yeah. And so I, I, you know, purviews in here too. Remember purview, <laughs> uh, yeah. which is, you know, like a data sensitivity process and auditing a purview. It's like data loss preventions in here, like so much capability in this one, one product of things. One lake is there, uh, you know, data activator is like so many things. So yeah, you're, the, the complexity you just described to me makes perfect sense <laughs> based <laughs> on what I know about this product and how complicated, you know, how, and, and also fabric, 
wasn't what these products started out as. They were a bunch of separate products. They now all lumped together into this fabric thing. Um, and so I'm sure there's some rough edges as they try to get these integrated properly that will suffer. I mean, it's it's getting close to the old IBM days where IBM made a ton of acquisitions and, and tried to glue all these things together. And it it never worked well. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and it was kludgy. And I think that that's largely why we don't talk about IBM much anymore. <laughs> So many, many moons ago, I worked at BMC Software, which uh, most people don't know who BMC is, but they know uh, it's helped us product called Remedy. <laughs> uh, is it dominated <laughs> the market till Snowflake ate their lunch. Uh, and so, you know, the only things about BMC was it was a company of acquisitions, you know, bought a ton of different products over the years. Um, and so when I worked there, it was always, I always sort of laugh because they had the, what they called the, uh, the Death Star chart. And it was basically all of the products, the entire product suite of BMC products you could possibly own. And they were all supposed to be integrated and tied together in this massive uh, circular chart that we called the Death Star. Uh, and you know, when you really dug into it, they were loosely integrated <laughs> <laughs> with different UIs, different APIs, different auth structures. And like, yeah, we wouldn't sold that to a lot of big companies who bought the whole package uh, and you know to really modernize and digitize their entire digital lifecycle. But uh, yeah, it was uh, very hard to actually do. <laughs> was what I know. <laughs> Yeah. All right. Uh, Azure Elastic SAN is now generally available. The industry's first fully managed and cloud-native storage area network offering the simplified deployment, scaling, managing, and configuring of a SAN in the cloud. Azure Elastic SAN responds to the vital needs for seamless migration of extensive SAN environments to the cloud, bringing a new level of efficiency and ease. This enterprise-class offering stands out by adopting a SAN-like resource hierarchy, provisioning a resource at the appliance level, and dynamically distributing these resources to meet the demands of the device wor- diverse workloads across databases, virtual desktop infrastructure, and business applications. Uh, they've released a couple of new features as part of the general availability, including the ability to investigate performance and capacity metrics with Azure Monitor Metrics, and preventing incidents due to misconfiguration with the help of Azure Policies. Um, can you think of anything less cloudy than a SAN? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's. I was thinking, wasn't Azure one of the first to really partner with NetApp and providing and working with their cloud volumes as sort of a mm-hmm. first party offering on their cloud? And so this is sort yeah. of. Yeah, so Azure NetApp Files is definitely yeah. a thing that they were, you know, big partners of NetApps and they did that. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so so right now, uh, you were talking about how bad everything being called Google Cloud Services is. Um, <laughs> Yeah. The or cloud storage. Uh, so Azure Storage Data Services, they have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven of them. Azure Blobs, what's that? Mm-hmm. Well, that's Object Store. Okay, Object Store, yeah. yeah. Azure Files, what's that? No idea. Yeah. Azure Elastic SAN, this new I thing. I can tell you, I'm not going to know any of the other ones because the I only know. one I know is Blob Azure, <laughs> Azure, I know Blob Storage too. Azure Queues, <laughs> Azure Tables, okay, Azure Q. Managed Disks, and Azure Container Storage. Plus oh Azure NetApp files. <laughs> so you we went from everything's called GCS to these memes don't make anything to me. Like yeah. Azure tables, you know what that is? Any guess? Uh, I, I, some sort of managed database service? It's a NoSQL store for schema less storage and structured data. Oh. That's yeah. Cool. And then Azure like queues that. is a messaging queue mm-hmm. or messaging store for reliable messaging between application components. That makes sense. Yeah, it's interesting sure. they're calling that a storage solution, but I mean, yeah, it's a little interesting, right? It, it makes yeah. sense though, kind of. I mean, you have uh, retention, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then Azure Files is basically managed file shares. It's like an it's like an NFS and SIFS, mm-hmm. uh, and then your Elastic SAN, which I 
you know, one thing that would be helpful to know, like, is this thing present to me iSCSI? <laughs> like, what does this yeah. even present to the server? Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the fact that they're mentioning the desktop makes it think that it's something like that, right? It's going to be, um, it has to be something that more than just the filer. Ah, uh, yes, it can be mounted with iSCSI. I just mm-hmm. found it in the docs. Uh, but it does not support encryption in transit, which could be a problem. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. It does have encryption at rest, but not in transit. So I assume we'll get something for that coming out later. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Oracle is automating my secret generation and rotation with the OCI secret management tool, which I would have assumed was part of it when they launched, <laughs> which means <laughs> I did not read the press release. Uh, OCI secret management offers a robust and secure solution for storing, managing, and accessing these secrets. Provide centralized storage production by protected by HSMs and granular access controls to help ensure the security and integrity of your secrets. And now you get automatic secret generation and rotation capabilities added to that. Automatic secret generation can create passwords, SSH keys, and random bytes, and templatize. Uh, and it has a templatization capability that allows you to do things like store JSON blobs with placeholders for secrets that are automatically generated for you. So basically, as you're you run a command against your JSON, and it basically inserts the stubs to the secrets for you automatically, which is kind of nice. Uh, and then with automatic rotation, you can set intervals from 1 to 12 months, and this feature integrates with autonomous database function and function services, allowing seamless rotation of your secrets in the autonomous database or function code as well. But anything else, you have to change those secrets yourself, so be careful. I think the biggest secret that they're keeping is who are the Oracle Cloud customers? Still haven't uh, met one. Yeah. <laughs> Banks? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> government <laughs> yeah uh yeah and they're out there you know mm-hmm. NetSuite customers are technically oracle customers so there's a lot of those yeah yeah that's true although they haven't really touched NetSuite too much but, i mean I, I don't know how much they touched really any of their erps including their own <laughs> in years so yeah. uh, maybe that's maybe that's not so special all right ryan well that's it another fantastic week in the cloud man all right it's been a good one yeah see you next week here at the cloud pod all right. bye everybody And that is The Week in Cloud. Check out our website, the home of the Cloud Pod, where you can join our newsletter, Slack team, send feedback, or ask questions at thecloudpod.net, or tweet us with the hashtag poundthecloudpod. All right, I have an after show for you, Ryan. Oh, Yeah. So we uh, we talked a few weeks ago about Google's new uh, cables, their undersea cables, right? And we ta- we kind of geeked out about how awesome they were. And then mm-hmm. uh, someone just happened to write an article about how do subsea cables work, <laughs> uh, which you know because we talked about how much we love them. Uh, I thought we should post this here in the in the show so people can go get geeky about subsea cables as well. I'll just highlight a few of the things they talked about. Uh, so this came from the Emerging Tech Brew blog, and they wrote this uh, basically. Uh, so basically, most cables have 16 slim fiber optic strands that transmit the data, surrounded by a layer of copper armoring, armoring to protect and stabilize the strands. This is then encased in a polyethylene jacket that's typically no bigger than the circumference of your thumb. And this runs through the deepest parts of the ocean, which I was kind of surprised about because I would have thought uh, the deeper in the ocean, the more pressure. And so you potentially need thicker cables uh, mm-hmm. that depth. Uh, but they did say as the cable reaches shallower waters, it's typically further armored because uh, there's potential for more damage from things like uh, anchors and other things. And those additional casings are up to two inches in diameter around the thumb-based uh, cable. Uh, the cables are laid by ships with thousands of miles of cables coiled in the bowels, <laughs> being fed off the ship, uh, much like unfurling a rope, 
Uh, and the ship apparently has a plow that creates a trough in the bed of the ocean of the cable and the underwater currents eventually bury the cable in sand. Uh, periodically, the cable will run through a housing that is designed to last 25 years to amplify the data on its journey, which I think we talked about uh, one of the Atlantic ones that Google had invented a new uh, amplification process, but those are only typically designed to last 25 years, which I thought was interesting. So I was like, what do you do at 25 years? Because the cable is probably so good if it's fiber. Yeah. Typically, you're just moving light faster through it. So I, I assume they had to go pull those up and replace them. <laughs> that, that's an interesting process. Yeah. Uh, and this process has not really changed since the telegraph. Only the amount of data traveling the wire has increased. Uh, wow. Apparently, there's over 500 subsea cables that traverse the globe today, uh, which is a lot of cables. I did not expect it to be that high. So, yeah, it was no. fascinating. So, those are just little tidbits, you know, why we think it's so geeky and cool uh, mm-hmm. that uh, I thought I'd share with our listeners today. I'm actually surprised that it's only the size of thumb. I would expect that they would have multiples of those that would be kind of bundled together. Well, I mean, I so imagine and the big ones that go between like Europe and US, you know, you're probably doing way more than 16, but you know, they're, this is the average cable size is 16. Uh, okay. Yeah. So that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. Cause you get yeah. a lot of traffic through 16 cables. Yeah. yeah, no, it's a lot. It is crazy. That's so wild. I've, yeah, it's it's fascinating to me because it's just once you get out in the ocean, it's so vast, and you imagine trying to find those those uh, repeaters, like and actually replace them when they're you know thousands of feet underwater. Like, and there's got to be a process, right? Like, because I imagine they fail sometimes, right? They don't always last twenty five years. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they're a moving object that has parts and power and mm-hmm. things in it that has to be managed. So I assume there's a process where they have enough slack in the line to be able to pick them up and, and do things to them. Uh, or maybe they send submarines yeah. down, or I don't, I don't know. Yeah. In my head, there's a whole bunch of buoys, and they're like tied to the, you know, these things. Under, <laughs> but it, I know that's not how it works. <laughs> no, definitely not that way. Uh, I mean, hey, if, if a subsea cable company ever wants to, you know, bring the cloud pot out to do like, we'll do live reporting of how the process mm-hmm. works, and we'll answer all these questions for people. So uh, you, you will we'll, have to put up we'll, with like nerdy fanboy questions about it. Yeah, we're, yeah, you're gonna have to deal with us being nerdies about it. But yeah, you know, we'll, we'll record it. And we'll even do a video on it. I'm, I'm oh, yeah. committed. Like you know, put me on a boat, and I'll you know, at least between two destinations, and I'll uh, I'll watch you put cable in. <laughs> Sounds like fun. Yeah. Right. Great. So, all right. Super well, cool. I help you learn something, Ryan. I did. I did. Absolutely. Super. All cool. right. Good. I'll see you uh, next week. All right. See you later.